0: Thanks so much for watching Making Healthcare Work For You, Different Perspectives and Empowering Solutions. I'm Stephanie Fields, joined by my co-host, Dr. Apoor Gupta, and today we are welcomed by Panta Vahidi, who is the founder of the Compassion Clinic. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: So today we're going to have a conversation around compassion and just kind of chat this out so that we can talk about it and I'll you know, maybe share some stories. But to kick it off, can you tell us what compassion is and what the compassion clinic is and what work you're doing?
1: I would love to do that, Stephanie. So, you know, when I started a compassionate care initiative at a major hospital in Southern California, something I learned quickly sitting with the C-suite and the leaders uh, in the hospital was that all all of us in the room had different definitions for compassion. And oftentimes we use it interchangeably with empathy or even sympathy. Uh, So I delved into the literature to find the actual um, definition and I modified it. And with my experience as a bedside nurse and just in general life experiences, I define compassion as understanding another's situation, need or pain and responding to it with a meaningful thoughtful action to ultimately provide relief hope joy strength or comfort so it's very intentional we understand someone's situation need or pain and it's not always pain sometimes it's a situation and we don't just walk away or listen to it, we actually take action in response to that to provide relief, hope, joy, strength, or comfort.
2: Well, so beautiful, uh, Panda. I, I just love that. Could you say, you know, one thought I was thinking about as you were talking about the definition, which I love, so elegant, is uh, is healing kind of incorporated as one of the end goals or you think it's uh, encompassed by one of the other outcomes that you just mentioned?
1: I believe compassion is the most powerful healing remedy. Now there's a distinction between curing and healing. And um, so, yeah, not curative, I'm emphasizing on the healing aspect of holistically healing someone. And so when you do this, that I just described, then the outcome is healing.
0: I loved the story of how you came to create the Compassion Clinic. I love that your background is something super technical. You were an engineer and then moved into this. So why did this become and how did this become something that was so important to you that you realized there was a really big need to focus on?
1: Yeah, so during my time at the bedside as a registered nurse, I realized the really difference between situations where patients are transformed by a provider that's exhibiting compassion, and then the destruction that it causes and all the horrible outcomes that come with, you know, those cold interactions in the absence of compassion. So that contrast is really what got me curious. And so I went on this journey to find out what is that magic that happens that really transforms patients to get up and to want to feel better and to participate in their own journey of getting better and they're more engaged. And um, so, you know, I delved into the science, I delved into the literature, uh, but eventually I found out that there's a gap and the gap is that we don't define compassion and we don't equip uh, people, whether it's providers or just the general public or teachers, with actionable tools. So people tend to default to their normal trauma response or stress response that over time becomes their personality, right? When you respond to a stressful uh, situation a certain way over time you adapt it as your personality so absent someone empowering you with new tools you continue to do that throughout your life so with my engineering background a, a little help and integration that it was kind of like the marriage of nursing and engineering um i reverse engineered compassionate behaviors that I observed or witnessed at the bedside into a teachable, repeatable uh, framework. That's how the work was born.
2: Amazing. Amazing. And Panta, I guess, you know, really at the outset, people might be scratching their heads wondering, we're talking about uh, healthcare providers, we're talking about nurses, we're talking about physicians, we're talking about maybe even teachers. Don't they already have an abundance of compassion? So what's going on here? I think you started alluding at it, uh, some of it in terms of maybe tools and training that may be necessary, but can you help us maybe even connect the dots a little bit more as to why should there be even a dearth of compassion in these so-called healing and teaching professions?
1: Yeah, so you're absolutely right. We come into healthcare because we have a heart for helping others and we want to exhibit compassion and we want to be compassionate. But once we stay in that high stress environment, what happens is that over time, we go into our stress response or trauma response. And so we're, we're also trained to, you know, whether it's in school or in different environments or in our families, that there's this myth that if you kind of uh, block your emotions and not feel, then you can get through your day easier. And that's actually being desensitized, which is one of the symptoms of um, burnout, is what causes burnout, you know, not having that connection with your patient or with your peers. So I think the importance of it is threefold. I always say in my lectures and webinars and workshops, I always tell people that compassion is the only remedy I know of that benefits three people. It benefits obviously the receiver. We don't need to expand on that. It's beautiful to receive compassion. It benefits the giver. and and i'm sure if you just pause for a moment and think about a moment that you've been compassionate towards someone it's the most replenishing reward that you can feel right saint francis says it's in giving that we receive so it replenishes the giver and then the interesting thing is that it also benefits the observer it's what the literature calls vicarious compassion. We're all vicarious beings. We can experience things through other people. And so, you know, that's why you see a lot of videos go viral on social media of two little toddlers hugging each other. And like you put it on repeat and you keep watching it and you just feel those happy hormones just by watching two people hug each other. So. Compassion is this powerful remedy that benefits all three. And trust me, as someone who's administered a lot of medications, I don't know of any other remedy that benefits three people, whether it's the family at the bedside observing that compassionate um, interaction, or it's the patient, or it's the provider. And it's really not just for the benefit of the patient. You go home and you feel like you've made a difference. You know, I always say in my workshops, I say, when all else fails, compassion prevails. Even if you lose your patient, even if you feel like medically you were a failure and you couldn't save your patient, you go home knowing you made a difference. You held their hand. You you were there for the family members. So, you know, we live in a society and a, we have a healthcare system that's very... Um, profit-driven, focused on productivity, and we lose touch of here's this remedy that we inherently have and we're not tapping into it.
0: Just like you said that it's beneficial to the three parties, do you feel like compassion and maybe desensitization is almost contagious are other people when they see that like you said a toddler hugging another toddler is it something that if you're in an environment like that that you can sort of pick that up i'm trying to, i'm thinking of like maybe um a hospice care situation where you're going to be dealing with a lot of people who are dealing with end of life things that are sad you know is that something that you you know can that become the pervasive culture of not caring or of caring
1: It definitely is contagious. And interestingly, you mentioned hospice. Um, I was a hospice nurse for some time and uh, you find that, and I actually was the recipient of hospice care most recently for my father. And you talk to hospice nurses and you're like, how could you do this job of always dealing with people who are sad? And the response I get every time is because they know they're making a difference during a time that's very vulnerable for people. And when you know that, that knowing becomes your fuel. And like you said, it could definitely be contagious. One of the things that we do and you know, the talk time sessions that I host is, when people see that interaction, they often write me and they say, You know, I went home and I replicated what we did in the session. So people learn by experience, not just by theory. They're like, Oh my God, I felt that. That was so powerful. Let me be that for someone else. So it becomes this ripple effect.
2: So beautiful, Pante. I, I really appreciate the way in which you're connecting all of these dots. And it's so eloquent the way you're explaining it. Uh, at this point, maybe it, it would help. You had said earlier that you reverse engineered some of the behaviors that you saw. Could you give our audience an example of one or two of those such behaviors that you were able to reverse engineer that you can teach people, maybe even conduct a mini exercise here uh, uh, together?
1: Yeah, happy to. That's actually um, what gives my life purpose. Is So, you know, we started with the definition of compassion. But to simplify it, I break it down and the mathematician in me, the former engineer in me, says simply compassion is having empathy, plus taking action. So that's the Vahidi compassion formula. So that makes the difference and the contrast between empathy and compassion very bold and highlighted right so compassion is empathy plus action without that action piece it's just empathy i also always you know share with people that we uh compassion is a survival mechanism we need it to survive the reason why we're here today and all three of us have made it through life is because someone was compassionate towards us um you know as human Infants, when we're born, we depend on others for our basic physiological needs. And so I always use the example of if you see a baby crying, whether they're soiled or hungry or thirsty, and you say, oh, my God, I feel so bad for that baby, and you keep walking, eventually that person, that baby's going to starve but it's the compassion piece of pausing and taking action and lifting them up and feeding them or cleaning them that is what helps them survive. So, you know, with that definition in mind, empathy is a huge topic and there are many amazing experts out there. I'll focus on the action piece, which is really my passion and my life's work is, When I reverse engineered all the different things that people do that makes a huge transformative difference in someone else's life. It boiled down to you take action and you either respond to the situation. Or you provide relief for the situation or you resolve the situation. So, you know, it's you have three tools and at your dispense at all times regardless of how impossible the situation may seem like even when someone is definitely dying and there's nothing else you think you can do you can respond relieve or resolve so you know in the interest of time i usually explain this sometimes and it takes half a day but in the interest of time i'll briefly um touch on each one if that's okay
2: yes please
1: so respond i always say respond is the opposite of ignore right so you see someone in pain are you gonna just walk by and kind of retrieve and not say anything or it could look like a you know, healthcare provider that comes into a room and says, you know, your scan results are back. This is the result. You have cancer. I'm sorry you you have to go through this and leaves the room. That's ignoring, right? And it feels very painful to the person on the uh, receiving side of it. And and you know, later I can explain why people do what they do. That's a trauma response. It's Essentially, they're flighting, you know, fight, flight, or freeze. So responding means being with. And I break it down into whether you can offer a verbal gesture, a verbal response. You can say words that bring comfort or bring hope, or you can, it could be a gesture. Right. It could be you sitting next to them, holding their hand, hugging them, offering your presence. Those are all gestures. Uh, you know, words like I had a patient, uh, very young, with three uh, little children that looked like dolls, and the physician came in. And she had colon cancer, and the physician came in right before her surgery. She was on TPN and. She was not eating or drinking, very nervous. And she asked the physician, um, am I ever going to be able to get off TPN? Uh, Am I ever going to be able to eat again? And the physician kind of like shrugged her shoulders with that look of like, I don't know, I can't promise anything. right?" And then we have all these things we've studied that you can't, give false hope to a patient and you have to be mindful of liability and, you know, not promising any outcomes. But then there's a fine line between not promising outcomes, or depriving people of hope, or instilling hope, right? So, so when you respond with a gesture, be it verbal or physical or your body language, you can instill hope. All right. So the physician left the room. My patient was completely distraught and and she looked at me and I could see she was on a continuous monitor. I could see her heart rate go up and she said, What do you think, Ponta? Am I am I ever gonna be able to eat? I mean, I have three young kids and she was visibly shaking and I I paused for a moment and I said, you know, obviously I don't know. I can't Promise outcomes, but there is something I can still do. So I looked at her and I said, look, I know you have serious cancer, but I believe in you more than I believe in your cancer. And I was thinking, okay, I need to give her like a rope, right, like a lifeline. And in that moment, I looked around and I picked up her iPhone and I, her screensaver was her three kids and i said look at them they're gonna fight for them and i believe in you so that's responding responding is using your words using your gesture choosing to stay choosing to offer your presence rather than fleeing or leaving the situation or ignoring or giving a cold look, that's responding.
0: I think, you know, I have two stories that kind of illustrate the two ends of that. When I was with my daughter before she was born, it was the day she was going to be born and I had to be induced. She was three months early and my I had an IV issue. And then I said to the nurse, I said, I'm scared. And she looked at me and she just went, this is not going to be a good day this is not going to be fun. You know, it's not going to be good. And I said, this is my daughter's birthday. It's going to be a good day. You know, I was almost glad that she said that because it made me mad and I responded to her, but I yelled for a nurse who was very caring a couple of days before. And I, she came in and I had her sit with me and, you know, it was just like, wow, how can you be that cold? And then in the NICU, my daughter was there for three months. And in the beginning there were a lot of scary days and she was on a ventilator for a month. And I said to the one neonatologist, I said, I can get through this, but I, I need to know that this baby can go home. And she looked at me and said, I don't know that this baby can go home. And she said, your baby's really sick. Yeah. I don't know if she's going to go. And I was like, again, you know, I can't believe this. I went home and cried. And then I went back the next day, that in rounds. And I said, okay, new rules. We're no longer using sick, bad, negative. None of those, none of those exist. I said, we, I don't need to sugarcoat anything. I said, but there's no reason to be overly negative about what's happening. I said, she was born at 27 and six. She can't produce blood yet. She needs three x-rays a day because she's on the ventilator. I said, so if she needs that, then that's okay. That's a busy day. She had a busy day. She had these things going on, but it's not a bad day. She can't produce blood. It's not bad. If she needs a transfusion, we're, we're filling her back up. And to their credit, not one person for the rest of the two and a half months said those words again. It worked out. And I can't say that that's why, but it was like just being able to have that like, okay, we're all on the same team. There is hope because that's what it is. It's like you feel helpless and hopeless when you don't. I have no medical background. I'm good at talking. How the heck is that going to help my baby live? you know, I came up with a mantra that I said to her every day, but like, that's what I can offer. I can offer the advocacy. And so I think it was, it provided that hope and empowerment for me to be able to go in there and say, here's what we're doing now. And then say, okay, let's do it. And we were all on the same team. And I mean, it really, it quickly turned around and it it matters the way that you talk to these people matters.
1: Absolutely. It definitely, and you know, I'm gonna I love that you said you made that rule and you advocated for yourself of no negative words, I, I can reframe that and say, no words that strip me of hope. Right? That's essentially what you were saying. And like I said, it's a fine line. And there's a difference between not being realistic or stripping people of hope. And you can still be realistic and not promise any outcomes but you can instill belief and hope in people you can even tap into their own belief system right i had a patient this one time that uh, again er, early 40s maybe late 30s and she just had a huge tumor the size of a melon uh, taken out of her abdomen and they were awaiting the biopsy results and uh, you know, they were Catholic, um, a faith I'm not very familiar with. And, the mother, and I looked at the mother. The mother was very distraught. And uh, the sister was there, I remember very clearly. And I had learned that they're religious and Catholic. And I said, would you guys like to say a prayer? And the mom said, yes. And I said, well, why don't you lead it? I I didn't say, I don't know how to pray in your uh, faith, but, and I said, let's hold hands. And we held hands and we, the mom led it and everybody said a prayer. And later on, she was like, Ponta, I can't believe you brought us all together in prayer. And that was so powerful. And it provided relief for us. So, you know, point of the story being, you can tap into people's own belief system. And kind of lift that and bring it to the surface. And you know, I always say uh, when I teach, I say compassion is like you're lending someone an emotional cane. They they can't walk. They're debilitated. They're frozen. They're in a state of shock. You know, all these different emotions that are going through them, and you offer that cane. And you're like, here, I'll help you walk with a cane until you can get back on your feet. So that prayer was that cane in that situation. You know, looking at that iPhone with the image of her three children was that emotional cane. And like you said, other ways of responding, when I w- which I delve into deeper, is advocacy is another way to respond, raising awareness. Right? If if you are passionate about a cause um and you really want to do that person good you advocate for them or you raise awareness about whatever social cause that there is
0: one thing about you know really considering that person's situation that was a story that you and i shared before we started recording that when my dad was in the hospital the same time my daughter was in the nicu he was in pennsylvania i was in south carolina and I had somebody who previously lost their dad say, you know, I-, I think you need to go there. You need to go be with your dad. Your dad's going to, he's not going to make it. And I'm like, I have a baby who shouldn't be born yet. I can't leave this baby. And so I was like, oh my God, you know, you're not thinking right. And I was like, I, I guess I got to go. And I literally had my packed, my shoes on. And I told the, his nurse, I said, I'll be there. It'll take me about 10 hours. And she said, where are you at? And I said, I'm in South Carolina. She's like, don't come here. She said, he's in an induced coma. I'm not going to let you see him. You're going to see him for two minutes and go back to the waiting room. Don't come here, stay there with your baby who you can help. And just being able to hear somebody else who was considering the full context of the situation and give you that permission to say like, okay, no, you, you do have to focus on that one thing and you're not doing anything wrong by that. I was so passionate to say, it's okay to not be focusing on this because you have these other things. So you really do. It's so important to take that person's thoughts and feelings and situations into the, into the mix.
1: That's the only time you can give a meaningful response, you know, if, uh, to know about their world. And one of the things I talk about when I talk about the compassionate mindset, which we won't have time to get into is enrolling in someone else's world. You know, I'm not gonna offer a prayer that works for me. I'm gonna, provide the situation for you to say the prayer that you believe in so like you said context is very important
2: wow I mean I could just continue listening to the back and forth because it's so real I mean what Stephanie has experienced and what she's able to express and how she's been able to get through it is really amazing it's very inspirational and it connects so nicely Pantea I think with what you're saying Uh, I, I just feel like uh you know, it, it, it kind of brings the message home for me um, in, in maybe just hearing both of you talk how we do focus as maybe as, as physicians in particular on the science aspect and the medicine aspect. And maybe that's what we think our training is about. And sometimes that gets drummed into us to just focus a little bit on, on what is it that we know, what the science shows and what the data shows, and not go too far beyond that. Uh, but you did a great job, Pante, of saying, well, you don't have to go beyond what you know, but you don't have to strip people of hope, because I think that that is really where some of the challenge lies, is not being able to understand that people need that sense of hope and optimism and compassion can can bring that to them. So uh, it's it's really remarkable. Maybe probably my one last question to you, Pente, if, because unfortunately we've run out of time around that would be, it feels like the approaches you've developed and the tools you've developed around them must be so empowering to the providers themselves, because they probably come into this thinking, I already know compassion. I'm supposed supposed to be Mm -hmm. compassionate. What are you going to teach me about compassion? But hopefully they'll have enough humility and vulnerability to realize that there's some things they can pick up so that they leave each interaction, not just with a clinical diagnosis, but also with a hopeful, you know, element. Um, could you make a few comments about about how the providers feel once they engage with? You?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You know, you use the word empowering, and that's one of my goals: is to empower not just providers but everyone. You know, parents, teachers, everybody, to know that they can make a difference. And I always, when I teach at nursing schools, I say you don't need to be a nurse to. It's it, an inherent power we have. To make a difference in someone else's life, and you know, when I talk to physicians or when I teach at med schools, I actually had med students tell me this was the most useful course I've taken to really empower me. And speaking of feeling empowered and back to burnout, which is a crisis right now, is one of the other symptoms of burnout is feeling helpless and feeling powerless. And I'm sure as a provider, you can relate to that. We're in a situation and we feel like there's nothing we can do. That actually causes burnout. And when you feel empowered, that regardless of how impossible the situation is, I can still make a difference, and you don't feel powerless and helpless anymore, then you feel connected to your power. And that's a huge gift you can give any clinician to know if the patient died and the CPR wasn't successful or whatever you did wasn't successful, but you were there and you made a difference. So you're not helpless, you're helpful. It makes a huge shift for people.
2: When my dad passed away uh, in June, Uh, your words couldn't have been truer because it's the way in which the clinicians treated us and just the compassion they showed uh in kind of helping us almost like same same thing as stephanie don't come to the hospital right now now is a good time to come let us take you in the room even though my dad was no longer at that point responsive uh, they were very very sensitive and careful and wanted to make sure we got time to spend and it was that was so critical and helpful so just another personal element but just showing how the stuff you're talking Mm -hmm. about is so meaningful because that's what I now carry forward with me and contributes to my healing it's really really valuable so thank you for sharing your insights about that
1: I love that and I'm glad you had that experience and not the opposite because the opposite could be devastating and that's actually what you're saying and what Stephanie said about that nurse actually guiding her what to do in a moment where she couldn't think clearly that falls under resolve which in the interest of time I think we'll keep for another day and another conversation but sometimes when people can't think and they're in situations that They need a little bit of help you can offer guidance and solutions so that's another way of being compassionate for sure
0: absolutely thank you so much this was great we really enjoyed it
2: thank you for having me thank you so much bye-bye thank you
0: all for watching bye-bye